0: Good morning, church. It is good to be with you, whether you are here in the sanctuary, whether you're joining us online through our live stream, whether you are listening on the radio through KTCU. Please know that wherever you are, it is good for us to be together, and we give thanks for the technology for us to be able to come together even when we are not. So we are in the middle of a series that We are calling holy interruptions, and we are noticing that there is this theme that over and over and over again in Scripture that God has this way of interrupting the lives of ordinary men and women, people like you and me, and coming to them and saying that I want you to partner with me to bring hope and healing, to bring heaven to earth. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the story of Abraham Then Samuel. Last week we looked at the book of Esther. Today we're going to look at the story of Jonah, the most reluctant prophet. Now, I know what you're thinking, Jonah? Seriously, Russ? That's a kid's story. It's about a guy that gets swallowed by a fish for crying out loud. We are adult, human, mature people of faith. What could there possibly be in that story for us? Well, I realize that it is a story that is familiar with a lot of us, but I would also suggest that a lot of us haven't ever read the entire story. We just read the children's version, and what we discover, what we see over and over again is there is depth to this story, that the fish gets all the attention, but ultimately this is a story about the character of God. And Jonah, who comes to discover, as we all do at some point in our lives, that obedience is not optional. Now, a little bit of background for the story. Jonah was a prophet in the middle of the 8th century BCE, came from a region of Galilee known as Gath hepher And we know this because he was a historical figure. He was mentioned in a number of different places in the Hebrew Scriptures, in particular in the book of 2 Kings. Now, I suppose that some of you may be wrestling with that question, the question in front of us, the elephant in the room, the horse on the table, pick your metaphor. But what are we supposed to do with that whole fish thing? Can we believe this? I think it's important for us to remember that part of this story reads like a history lesson, part of it more like fiction or maybe a fairy tale. It leaves us wondering is it a parable? Is it an allegory? Is it rabbinic midrash? Is it like the book of Esther that we talked about last week, a bit of satire? Is it homiletical humor? I was thinking recently about my friend Gary, who is one of the funniest people I know, and his favorite joke is this. Have you heard about the one-armed fisherman? He caught a fish this big I just realized that to those that are listening on the radio, that makes no sense at all. (laughs) Well, the truth is, I've been known to tell a fish story or two in sermons. In fact, one time my son came up to me after listening to one of my sermons and said, that story that you told, Dad, did that really happen? And I thought for a moment, and I said, well, Jacob, if it didn't, it should have. So here's how I would respond to that question about what do we do with the fish. And it's simply this, to remind you that we are to take the Bible seriously, but not literally. That there are lessons that can be learned, there can be truths that can be gleaned without taking the stories of Scripture in a literal manner. So in my advice to people always is don't miss out on the deep theological truths. Don't let the literal questions get in our way. Now, at the time of this story, in the middle of the 8th century, Assyria was the dominant world power. It was the greatest empire that the world had ever known. And not only was it large, it went from Egypt all the way to what is now Iran. Not only was it large, but it was also powerful, but it was also violent and cruel. They would chew up and spit out countries left and right, and after times when they would when they would conquer a nation, they would put the entire population on a death march. Genocide was a state policy of the empire. And when Israel was split into two sections, the northern and the southern kingdom, the north had 10 tribes. You may remember the south had two. The northern kingdom was captured and basically decimated, vaporized by the Assyrians. So needless to say, Assyria was hated, the sworn enemies of everyone, but especially the people of Israel. And the capital of Assyria was a place known as Nineveh, and it's located on the Tigris River in what is now Iraq, near the city of Mosul. And so if you want to understand about how an Israelite may have felt about Nineveh, just know that this was not just any other city, that this was, this was like thinking of Al-Qaeda or the Taliban, Nazi Germany. Nineveh was danger. It was trouble. It was fear. And so that's the context. That's the context in which God speaks to Jonah, this man of a good life, a comfortable life. And God says those three little words go to Nineveh.
1: Jonah, chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set about to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent a mighty wind upon the sea, And such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid, and each one cried to his God. They took the cargo that was in the ship and threw it into the sea to lighten it for them. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came to him and said, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought so that we do not perish. The sailors said to one another, Let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. The men said to him, tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where is your country? Of what country are you and of what people are you? Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew. I worship the God, the Lord of heaven and earth. And at this point, the sailors became even more afraid, and they said, what is this that you have done? For they knew that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then the sailors said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may calm down for us? For the sea was becoming more and more tempestuous. Jonah said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea will calm down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the sailors rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the ship was becoming more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made a vow. But the Lord sent a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The word of God for the people of God.
0: Thank you, Barbara, that was outstanding. So have you ever had one of those moments in your life, a time when you were struggling with something, when you had to make an an important decision, you were torn, not sure which way to go, not sure which way to do, and so you pray, sometimes maybe even out of desperation as much as anything else, and you just pray, God, I could really use some direction here. Just lead me. Tell me where to go. Tell me what to do. And all you hear is the sound of your own breath. Is there anything more deafening than the silence of God? Well, here in this story, Jonah prayed the prayer, but he got a word. The instructions were clear, they were concise. Three little words, go to Nineveh. And he gets up and he goes in exactly the opposite direction. I looked this last week at my children's storybook to see how the versions were different between the NRSV, the story we just heard and is often told in the Bible storybooks. And, and my favorite part was this little cartoon that showed Jonah on the dock and he's standing there and above him there is a sign like a signpost type thing and in one direction it had with an arrow that said Nineveh and then just below it there was another sign saying not Nineveh <laughs> Well Jonah went to not Nineveh he went the other direction running away from God now let's be clear he's not just running from Nineveh He's running from God. Here's Jonah, this prophet, this man of God, and he runs away, he runs away from God. Can you imagine such a thing? (laughs) Who would ever do something like that? Who would ever disobey a word from God in their lives? You know, oftentimes when I read scripture, my prayer is God, help me to be more like the people in the Bible. Sometimes, when I read this story, my prayer is, God, help me because I am just like the people in the Bible. Important to remember that Jonah isn't the first person reluctant to answer God's call. You may remember Moses was called to lead God's people out of slavery, and he begs God to let him off the hook. I don't talk so good, he says. Send someone else. And Jeremiah, he tries to run away from his call by claiming he's too young. I'm just a boy, he said. Isaiah fears his lips are not worthy to proclaim a word of God. They are unclean. Apparently, he'd been swearing too much. And when Jesus calls Simon Peter to cast his nets to catch for a fish, he argues and says, whoa, 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 Jesus, I've been fishing all night. Had merely a nibble. Esther, you heard the story last week. She was terrified. She feared for her life. Well, Jonah gets up and he goes down to the docks at Joppa, which was the port city, and he finds the next ship headed out to Tarshish, which is believed to be in the southern tip of Spain, which is about as far away in the opposite direction as you can go. And he thinks to himself, he thinks to himself, surely I can get away from God there. God, no way can find me there. Now, if I want to disobey God, the first thing that I have to do is to make sure that my mind doesn't realize that God is already there. To mentally, and we do this all the time, we eliminate the awareness of God's presence, God's character, God's holiness. I have to keep my mind about other stuff so that I don't focus on that stuff. If I want to do something wrong, I have to convince myself that there is some place that I can go where God isn't, that I can somehow flee God's presence in my life. And we all do this, don't we? We all do this all the time. It may look like this. I, I know, I know, God, that you're asking me to go to Nineveh, this place that I don't really want to go. God's asking me to confront this person, to have this hard conversation, and I don't want to, so I'm just going to go to Tarshish. I know God is calling me to serve in this particular area, but I don't want to. It might be a little humbling. It might be difficult. It might be a little scary. It might push me out of my comfort zone a little bit, and so I'll just run away to Tarshish. I know that God is calling me to let go of the grip that money has on my life. And I know, I know that it does. And God says, trust me enough to be generous. Test me with your ties, God says. But I'm afraid. I'm afraid. And so I'm going to run to Tarshish. And maybe it looks like this, that I've got this secret. I've got this secret that I don't want anyone to know about it. It's a habit that I can't break. And I know, I know that I need to let others in. I need to, to take the lid off. I need to let the light shine in it just a little bit. But I don't want to. I know that God wants me not to be quite so judgmental of other people. To be more forgiving. To not be so bitter. And I know. I know this. And, and, and I, I really want to be all those things. But still, deep down, I'm looking for a ship to Tarshish. And that's what Jonah does. He thought, as we all do at some point, I can hide from God. Nobody, nobody will ever know. Maybe, maybe you're there right now. Well, it's an amazing story. He goes down to Joppa, the port city, and finds a ship bound for Tarshish. And after paying the fare, he goes aboard and he just sails away trying to run from God. Now, there's that little phrase there in the Scriptures that oftentimes we would just sort of pass on by, but it's an important part of the story. The text says that he paid the fare, but it's important to remember that in the ancient world, at that time, money was still relatively new. It had been a barter economy to that point, and money was scarce. Hardly anybody at that time would be able to pay the fare. So automatically, we just know that he is a man of resources, of mobility. He's got options. Not only that, but some scholars believe that paid his fare, paid his fare in Hebrew means that he paid everyone's fare that he bought all the tickets. He chartered the whole ship so that he could get away. He wanted to go as far and as fast as he could go, and he wanted to go as soon as he could possibly leave, and so he chartered the whole ship. And part of the reason, part of the reason that he wanted to go to Tarshish is not just because it's in the opposite direction from Nineveh, but also because it was the opposite kind of city, that Nineveh was this military city, Tarshish was a city of great wealth. It was a a port city like Joppa. And so there was lots of trade. And sea commerce at that time was was sort of like new technology and it was making people rich. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but, but in this instance, at that time, it was a city known for greed and arrogance and pride. And so that phrase, a ship of Tarshish, became a symbol of wealth. In the ancient world. So Jonah runs away. So Jonah runs away. Several years ago when I was doing youth ministry, I had my youth group gathered together one Sunday night, and I wanted to do an exercise. We were talking about temptations, and I passed out index cards and pencils, and I said, I want you to write down your three greatest temptations. What are the three greatest temptations that you face? And if you tell me that you don't have any temptations, well, you're committing the sin of lying because I know that we all are tempted in some way, shape, or form. I told them that it was going to be anonymous and I had somebody else, uh, another adult, one of my youth group sponsors that, that was going to tally up the list. And as we, as we looked at the list of all the temptations, you could probably guess what they were. Drinking, drugs, cheating, sexual activity, there was all those things. But guess, guess what the number one temptation? To run away. To run away. You know, one of the girls in the youth group looked at the list and said, you know, Russ, in some ways, all of the items on that list represent some form of running away. Of course, she was right. Drinking, drugs, you're running from something. Fear, pain, whatever it is. A few weeks later, I had a seminar for the parents. And I asked them the same question. I had them list out their temptations. And would you believe that their lists were almost identical? That the number one temptation for parents, you already know, to run away. To run away from the responsibilities, from the busyness, from, from all of it. Just to escape. Just to run away. Well, that's what Jonah does. He runs away. He runs away from his calling. He runs away from the presence of God. He runs away from the risky adventure. He wants something safe and easy, something that comes without risk, something that won't change him into the person that God created him to be. Several years ago at my last church, I preached a sermon, and the title of the sermon was The Hell with Your Career, What's Your Calling? And after the service, a man in my congregation, pretty wealthy, pretty successful man, follows me in, follows me into my office, and he closed the door behind him, and with tears in his eyes, he says, you know, Russ, your sermon, it really got to me. I've been running from God my whole life, he said. I need to rediscover my calling. So I said, Okay great. What's your calling? And his head hung low and he said, I can't even remember. I can't even remember who I am, let alone who God is calling me to be. What about you? Is there something that you are running from in your life? Have you bought a ticket to not Nineveh? A ticket To anywhere just to get away from where you are from who God created and calls you to be well let me say this let me say this that it is never too late to quit running from God it's never too late to quit running from God but also let me tell you this that it is never too soon to quit running from God So maybe you've been doing it in really obvious ways and the people around you who know you, who love you the most, they can see it. Or maybe you've been running in in secret, sort of hidden ways and maybe you were hardly even aware of it until just this moment. But maybe the storm has hit. Maybe it's on the horizon. But don't wait for it to get worse. So this morning, maybe this week, I want you to pray this prayer. To pray this prayer with me. And just simply ask, God, is there any place that you are calling me to go to Nineveh? Any way, shape, or form that that you are asking me to do something that I have been resisting you on? God, have I been running from you? And if you get the sense, somewhere deep down inside, that the answer to any of those questions is maybe even a faint... Yeah. It's time. It's time to quit running from God.